0: welcome to another episode of the myths that make us you divine unicity consciousness pretending to be a fragmented thing that responds to a fucking mouth noise that you've conditioned your entire life to be your identity and that the fact that you're listening to podcasts like this you're slowly on the journey of dissolving that illusion and then opening up into the terrifying awe that everything is one and that eternity is real. Okay, I'm talking to myself now. Welcome to another episode of The Myths That Make Us. There's really three types of uh, episodes that happen. And one is when I get to interview someone and learn about their myth and I don't know them that well and I'm excited to. Another one is when I interview an expert and I'm really excited to learn about um, whatever it is that they're an expert in. And then there's a third kind that is my favorite kind. And it's when one of my friends who are close to me is stupid enough to come on this podcast and to let me flay them psychoanalytically open for everyone who listens is enjoyment. And this is one of those episodes. Uh, Madeline Griffin is someone who I s- first met three years ago when I started at It. Her and I started around the same time. We were both such little babies and we had no idea what we were saying yes to. And one of my favorite things is to witness someone change their life in the direction of saying yes to who their soul wants them to be. And Madeline is one of those people that I've been able to witness as a friend alongside her as she has said yes and to see the massive transformation that has uh, occurred i invite you to do what she did to me which is go check out her instagram at conscious.curious and go scroll backwards and see the transformation in reverse and then make a fucking photo reel of her most embarrassing pictures and then text them to her shout out to madeline because that's what you did to me and so now we're just going to bring it back full circle this is a super dope podcast and uh we really get into the subtleties and intricacies of how people in our generation cope with the lack of community with alcohol and addiction. And that was a part of her story. And she was vulnerable and authentic. And it was Fifi, if you've been keeping up with the introductions of the last couple podcasts. Um, <clears throat> as always, if you would like to keep me from bombarding you with uh, commercials about toothpicks and lint rollers uh there's a couple of ways that you can help me support the podcast and pay my, my my dude behind the mic uh graham he's the wizard behind all of this and he's not cheap guys um is to get on the newsletter at eric check out the two courses um how to make your myth which is an introduction to journaling And then the Dharma Journal, which is a supercharged visualization add-on to your journaling practice that will uh, tear your life apart because you will connect to your daemon and your daemon will tell you to do the things that you're afraid to do. And everything that you've ever said no to because you've been afraid to do it will start to yell at you in a way that has never yelled at you before and you will never be able to ignore it and you will be transformed. So uh, with that uh, cautionary (laughs) warning... Check out the Darwin Journal. It'll ruin your life. <laughs> We're keeping it. Um, as always, thank you for your time uh, and your attention and your love. I deeply appreciate it. And without further ado, Madeline Smith. Welcome to the podcast, Madeline. Thank you. Uh, I haven't had the opportunity to do a podcast with someone that's a really good friend in a couple of years, actually, um, or at least someone that I interact with constantly uh, over a couple of years. And so I'm excited because one of the beautiful things about this podcast is uh, I'm going to learn things about you today that I've never heard or known. And it's, it's such an interesting thing to feel into that... Most of us have friends that maybe we've been friends with for like 10 years and we've never had a sacred container conversation with them where we don't look at our phones. We don't worry about what else is going on in the world. And we actually try to like get to know the core of who they are. Like when I started this podcast, I could only record with my friends. I, I, no one knew who the fuck I was or what I was doing or anything like that. But what I found is after my first like seven episodes, I got such a deeper bond with each of them. So I'm excited to do that with you. But the thing that I wanted to start the podcast with is one of my favorite things to witness in the world is people grow more into who they are into like who they're meant to be. And I think, you know, part of my gift or my curse or what I'm called to do is to like, really like help bring forward, uh, where people are at into where I see their soul wants to be. And you and I started at on it around the same time. And, uh, we both went to that spirit ranch retreat that, uh, people get sent on uh, when they first join on it. And it's almost specifically the people who look like they won't ever dance. It's, it's like Aubrey has an eye for, okay, who on my team <clears throat> is afraid to dance? I got to <laughs> send them to go meet Perangi. And you and I went there together um, with probably about like eight other people and the transformation that we've all got to witness in you from when you first started to where you are now it's so fucking incredible and i'm excited to learn more about the story that brought the madeline who arrived here and then to kind of go through the story of the madeline, of the madeline that now sits in front of me who I, i'm pretty sure has multiple businesses um is hosting or planning or putting together one of the most transformative masterminds that i know about uh plug fit for service. (laughs) And, uh, you're just crushing it. So I just wanted to articulate that and just say, congratulations.
1: Thanks. What a good intro.
0: Yeah. I'm fucking crushing it too. (laughs) Uh, so, um, to kind of give people a sense of who they're talking to, let's say that you just did something that puts you in a flow and then you finish that thing. And I don't know who you are. And I come up to you. I'm like, who are you? And what do you do? Uh, what is the thing that you would do to get into flow? And then what would your answer to that be? And don't give me that like spiritual thing, like I'm the universe coming through a human body. Like, yeah, I I don't think it. I
1: would say that. You know Perfect. me. <laughs> Perfect.
0: Okay, so just take it away.
1: Um, I think the thing that puts me most in flow, which is like kind of a, it might be a little bit of a cop-out, but to be fair, it's probably doing the events that I do. Yeah. It's like that feels to me like the, easiest thing in the world. And it's like, I've been cultivating that practice for a long time of like how to do it. And yes, it's work and it's my profession, but it's also like once those events start, I'm just like autopilot. It's so easy. It's such a flow. Um, And I think it's like, I am just the kind of person who I thrive in that environment like the chaos and the you know fires going on somewhere and it's like invigorating for yeah. me to just like run around like a fireman putting things out and like firewoman firewoman get them and just like sprinkling magic yeah. and like fun shit wherever i go yeah um it just feels so easy it's like the most flow I could possibly be in. It's great.
0: And so if someone came up to you and asked you who you are, so your full name, as mm. it appears on your birth certificate, also your social security number. Yeah. Um, and they asked you, what do you do? What would you say?
1: Madeline Rose Griffin. Get him. That is me. Um, I am a baby witch.
0: Mm. <laughs> You know, We'll get more into that. Yeah, we will. Uh, let's say that they give you a confused look like what?
1: Um, I think I am the, I'm a person who just like any other person is wandering through this crazy life, just having the most fun possible and just trying to, connect people and be, you know, be the light for people and not light in terms of like spiritual light, but light in terms of like happiness and yeah. joy and yeah. connection. And like, I just feel like I'm the, I'm the like connector of stars.
0: I love that. you're dark matter. Yeah. One of the things that I feel, um, that everyone who's alive right now can feel is that most of us grew up with parents that truly uh, weren't given a template or really an opportunity to have like deep tribal connections. And we saw what that created in our parents and it feels like our generation, while we don't know what the solutions are, we know that one of the things that's desperately missing is like deep, genuine connection with other people. And it's awesome that a part of your Dharma call is to create experiences that help people connect. Um, How would your best friend describe you and what you do in the world?
1: Mm. This is interesting because I've been saying for a long time now that like I'm kind of in two worlds, which I describe as like my normie world. And then like you, and all of my other friends that are You were to say
0: woo-woo, weren't you? (laughs) No. (laughs) You-you.
1: You-you. And so it's funny because if you were to ask my quote-unquote normie friends who I am, they would say, you know, she's really just marching to the beat of her own drum. We don't know what the fuck she's doing.
0: And she drinks like a juggernaut.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Probably, yeah, they would say that. Um, I think my... Friends that would be, you know, the ones that are probably listening to this podcast would describe me as.
0: And I want a name for those friends. So we have the normies. What are these other ones?
1: Uh, they don't have a name yet. Why well, might come up with one by the right, end of this? Cool. <laughs> um, I think they would describe me as. Oh, it's hard. Probably just like weird and funny and wild and really doesn't have a filter, (laughs) you know?
0: Can confirm. Yeah. Uh, How would your closest romantic partner describe you and what you do?
1: Well, don't have one of those. Um, A past romantic partner?
0: Whichever one you felt saw you the most.
1: Probably none of them.
0: Then you can give the answer for all of them. How would they describe you and what you do? And what I do? Yeah.
1: Um, They would describe me as very independent. Too independent. (laughs) Um, They would describe what I do as... I don't think honestly any of them would even know yeah. I've never been in a romantic relationship with someone who's like understanding of the part of my life. That's woo
0: woo. Yeah. You know, no, no. Yeah. Uh, how would your father describe you and what you do?
1: My father would describe me as playful and you know, really just has a a mind of my own. (laughs) He he has never been able to predict what I'm going to do or, um, you know, he's very accepting of everything that I do, but he's very like, I have no idea what's going on in your little head.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And how would your mom describe you and what you do?
1: My mom would describe me as... um, Probably just someone who has taken in a lot of the outside world and is trying to come up with a path that's better Hmm. than what I've seen.
0: Yeah. And now we're going to get a little bit weird. Uh, that thing that I know that you met when you did 5-MeO how would that thing describe what Madeline is and what she's doing in the world
1: that would describe me as very afraid yeah already crying (laughs) 5-MeO for me for, for those listening was the worst most terrifying experience of my life and it was because I was so afraid of literally everything and afraid of not being in control. And Mm -hmm. like, that really was it just like so terrified of the ether.
0: Yeah. One of the things that, um,
1: Oh, it was so scary. I'm thinking about it now.
0: (laughs) Beautiful is, uh, we grow up in a culture that um, implies that control is possible. And I think that to the degree that our culture is disconnected from the wisdom of nature, we're even allowed to hold that delusion. And our little perfect cubes with our air conditioning and all the tools being made in proportion to human hands, <clears throat> it gives the illusion that you can control. And Which, let
1: me tell you, you cannot.
0: No. <laughs> And that, uh, one of the beauties of psychedelic experiences, but not just psychedelic experiences is they can help you practice dying, you know, and that our culture is fundamentally, uh, disassociated from the fact that we do die. Uh, you can look at all the different ways that the world has responded to COVID because on one level it reminds us like, you're going to die little monkey. And, um, there's this idea that you don't really get to live until you accept that you're going to die. Because if you're pretending like you're not going to die, <clears throat> you can sleepwalk through your life. And I think that you're such an interesting and important bridge to a lot of people because, um, you still have enough of the ego where you can even resist a five meo experience that actually <laughs> allows you to connect with the quote unquote normies, even though I feel like that's kind of a derogatory label and would antagonize. It's in some a very
1: loving, loving way.
0: Right. Um,
1: it's for people who are ready and curious to cross the bridge, but haven't done it yet.
0: Right, and then there's your group of friends who, like, yeah, we know we're going to die, and uh, we practice dying. And we try to practice dying so we can live, you know, in a more beautiful way. Like one of the motifs in almost all the mythologies is that the gods envy humans because humans can die and because humans can die, everything's so dramatic and potent and deep and exciting. Um, and so that's a part of the gift. What I'm curious, I would love to kind of cover the story that brought you to on it, because a couple of things like when you first started at on it um you know there were the people that worked here who like they're comfortable in the matrix and they might and i don't mean that in a derogatory way and then there was the like group of super weirdies um who were flying down to peru and doing all sorts of things and i could always feel that you were curious about the weird group but for a while you were like i want nothing to do with that you guys are fucking weird (laughs) um but once i got to know you a little bit um i learned that you had taken this trip to india and that and like the fact that you had even done that was like oh she's gonna cross over at some point because (laughs) the roots are already there Uh, and then you also shared that you got a degree in uh urban planning Mm -hmm. which if i let my uh mind kind of play the game that it likes to play. Like that there's a fundamental transition happening for the people who are starting to be able to see that the matrix is operating in a way where if it's not changed radically, we're going to destroy ourselves. And that a part of that is going to require urban planning. And I don't know anyone who has a fucking degree in urban planning. So you might actually serve a very important opportunity there. But so I'm curious, like, Uh, if you could kind of give us as deep or as brief of an overview as feels right of like what your childhood was like, what interests brought you to even study something like that in college, and then what eventually brought you to India. And, um, I'm just going to let you start telling the story and I'll ask questions as they arise. But so let's start with baby Madeline. Let's start from
1: the beginning. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, baby Madeline born in Boston, to a very Irish father and just a generally Irish Catholic family couldn't have been more classic. Um, I, my childhood was very normal, you know, um, grew up in the city and just super like classic upbringing, married parents. I went to Catholic school. Um, you know, it was, it was pretty regular. When I got to high school, I kind of started being a little bit interested in yoga. I remember going to some classes, um, at a local studio. And I feel like I was definitely the only person that I knew that even had an inkling of going in that direction.
0: What do you think that was? What do you think happened early in your life that even drew you to do something that no one else around you was doing?
1: I honestly think it was nothing about a draw to, to something particular. I think it was my desire to do something out of the ordinary, which is very, that's very classically me. Um, just to, you know, shock people or (laughs) just be, be the different person. Um, So I really think it was that. I was a vegetarian for a long time, not because I cared about animals, but because I wanted to be different. Um, And so when I went to college, again, decided to do something different. I decided to go to Montreal. um, And that's not the most different thing. But, you know, I left the country and went to a place where none of my friends were going. And, you know, went to this college in a big city that like didn't have dorms and you just had to live on your own in an apartment. And it was amazing. And I loved it because I got to just be whoever I wanted to be. And, um, I studied urban planning because I couldn't, I couldn't, uh, pass the classes for exercise science, which is what I wanted to do. Mm. Um, I couldn't do, uh, like intro to chemistry. <laughs> and I was like, all right, what can I do that doesn't have chemistry involved? Um, I loved urban planning. It was amazing. It's creative. And, you know, I got to sit in classes of only 15 people and just draw on paper for hours at a time, which was great. I loved it. Um, but I, I think so many kids do that. They pick a major and they're like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just here because I'm told to, and I need to get this degree. And I'm just going to, I'm just going to finish it out and see what happens. Um, so I did that. And then there was an opportunity for me to go to Uganda, um, to do this internship kind of program. And, I went there with... Um,
0: is this after you graduated or you're still... Yeah, on?
1: right after I graduated. I missed graduation. Um,
0: I just didn't go online.
1: Yeah. I was on a plane flying out and was like, yeah, this is definitely the move. Went to Uganda, um, which was fantastic. I have a lot of, you know, feelings about that now, about, you know, the way that people travel um, and quote-unquote volunteer or work, um, That's another story, but it was a really great experience. It was my first introduction to like really traveling on my own and going to a place that was so new and just completely unknown. Um, Traveled quite a bit after that and then um, ended up moving to Austin. I got a job at a magazine that I hated, hated. I made pennies, it felt like. Um, Got myself into a shit ton of credit card debt, which is actually a big part of my story now. Um, Got fired from that job because I hated it and thus was really terrible at it and just was... When I lost my job, I was so relieved. Also... So lost. And I was like, what am I going to do? I have no idea what the next step is. I don't know what's going to happen. Like, do I just get another shitty job? And that's the point where I decided, oh, I'm going to go to India and do yoga teacher training. And this has been my thing for so long where I don't think about decisions. I do not have analysis paralysis. I will decide in a moment's notice and just do that thing. And it's worked out for me thus far. And so I feel, I feel that positive reinforcement from my own self. So decided to go to India, left within like four weeks um, on my own. I went to the foothills of the Himalayas in Northern India to Rishikesh and did 200 hours of yoga teacher training. And the thing that was interesting about that is that for anyone who's done teacher training in India, it's very different from most teacher trainings here. Um, We spent, I don't even know how many hours of our 200 sitting in meditation, Mm. which to me was not what I expected at all.
0: Was that your first time ever meditating?
1: No, but it was, it really challenged my belief of what yoga was. I'd done yoga for a long time. um, And my kind of intro to yoga was in Ashtanga yoga, which is a very traditional practice, but very movement based. The asana of it is, you know, it's, it's a very physical practice. And so when I got there and, you know, we would sit in meditation for an hour every morning, and it was hard. It was so much harder than I expected it to be. I was so fit when I got there. And I was like, I'm gonna crush this. It's gonna be so easy. And then I sat still for five minutes and I was like, I need to go, uh-huh. this is so hard. And it was really for me, the first introduction of a real spiritual practice. Um, and you know, coming to terms with the fact that I didn't know that that's what I was interested in, uh. but that's the part that that's the part that kept me. Actually, uh. I thought that that was going to be you know the thing that sent me home, but that's the part that kept me going through the whole thing. And I actually ended up getting very very sick and was just I barely was able to do a lot of the a lot of the actual movement that we were doing because I had deli belly. And so I spent so many hours just sitting and watching and consuming and internalizing everything that everyone else was learning and came home with a 200-hour yoga teaching certificate that I had no idea how to use. And I think even from the beginning, I I didn't think that I was going to teach yoga. And I don't know if I... I don't know if I ever really wanted to, but I think the idea that I, you know, I did it, I paid for the certification, I got it, I came home and I was like, all right, I have to do this. And I didn't at all for a long time. And I was terrified because anyone who's done a teaching certification knows that it's not enough time really to learn how to teach. Um, Everyone feels pretty... Underprepared, I think. And then you just have to start, which I didn't do. So then I got paralyzed by I haven't started. I have to start now. Still haven't started. Um, And then when I got back, I was looking for work that felt useful. I didn't want to go do events at another magazine that I felt like was just a total waste of time and I found on it and um, it was a executive assistant position. And I found the girl that was hiring on LinkedIn. I sent her a bunch of messages. I sent a bunch of emails and I think I just annoyed her enough that she answered me and was like, okay, come in for an interview. Um, So I ended up getting that job as an executive assistant. And from the moment I started, I just started asking like, what about events? And I kind of, you know, her and I started, she was already doing events as part of her job and we just started kind of doing that. They ended up hiring an events director and I annoyed him enough to hire me under him. Shout out Alex Earl. Get him. You'd a real one. <laughs> um, so once I started working events for Onnit I had the opportunity um, to do some continuing education yoga with Black Swan, so I started a 300-hour program. Still, never taught, but I was like, all right, this is available to me. I should do it, and it's something I'm interested in. So I did 300 hours of yoga teacher training. Still, never taught. Maybe once or twice here and there, Um, and always kind of had that thing in the back of my mind that was like, you need, you need to do this. Like, this is important. This is really the path that you should be on. Like, why are you just throwing events for a fitness company, which I loved, but there was always a thing in the back of my head that said, okay, there's something else. There's something more, there's something different. And that's when fit for service came to be. That was kind of around the same time. And I remember in the beginning, you and Ian came over to my desk and said, we're supposed to throw an event for Aubrey. Can can you help us? And I was like, oh God, these boys need help.
0: Yeah. So uh, Fit for Service is the mastermind that Aubrey started three years ago. And um, when Aubrey has an idea, He's. It's. He goes and he does it, and uh, he has faith that his team will figure it out. And he asked me <laughs> and Ian to uh, event plan a mastermind, and it's neither of our. We don't have that skill set at all, and we had full time jobs that we both were doing more than we could possibly do, anyways. And so, yeah, we asked Madeline for some help.
1: Yeah, so Alex and I stepped in and started helping with fit for service. And that was the first, that was the first time that I felt like this is so weird, but I'm so into it, but don't say that you're too into it because it's so weird. And so I was like, (laughs) kind of under the radar being really jazzed about it, but also like to other people, I'd be like, it's fucking weird. Like, I don't know. I don't know what it is.
0: All right. So I want to zoom in on a couple of things before (laughs) we go further. One is um, what I find with people is as soon as they begin to wake up even enough to start to hear that voice, I think we all have that voice. I call it the daemon. I think that uh, most of us do a good job being traumatized by culture to a degree where we don't even recognize that we hear it for a long time. But something happens where we first make contact with it and our first response is to ignore it. I find that when we start to ignore it, um, we have to really ratchet up our destructive coping patterns. And so I would love for you to vulnerably and genuinely share, like when you got back from India up until the point of starting to feel into the, your call to the weirdness and fit for service, what were your destructive coping patterns and, um, just what was that side of your life like?
1: Eric with the fire questions cause he <laughs> knows the answers. <laughs> um, Yeah. I mean, alcohol for sure. I, you know, coming from where I come from and from an Irish family, alcohol has always been around. And even in my childhood, like my family drinks heavily, (laughs) you know, not all the time and not you know, but there's, there's alcoholism in my family for sure. And I've always been told like, you know, there's alcoholism in your family and that's hereditary. And so be careful. And I said, fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and you know, I went to college in a place where the drinking age was 18. We just raged from day one, day one. And alcohol to me always, I, I used to think I was an extroverted person because I could drink and be extroverted.
0: Shout out to Graham, the producer behind the screen. He has the same belief.
1: Totally. Yeah. And, you know, alcohol for me was always, I think from the very beginning, I would feel like shit, not physically, emotionally. I would always feel like shit. And the only way to feel less like shit was to keep drinking Mm. and continue to be in that, in that cycle with those groups of friends. And, you know, to be, I mean, I, I can probably, I can probably say the first time that I thought about like legitimately quitting drinking was early in college. Like if it was a problem that early, I probably should have listened to that way sooner, but.
0: Can we zoom in on that moment in college? Uh, what, what happened where you first where for the first time you're like, oh, wow, this might be something I should remove from my life completely. Cause I think this will be important for people.
1: I mean, I can't remember a specific time, but you know, there were many times like I would black out instantly. We'd, go out and, you know, like we'd be at clubs and we'd be at bars and like, we just do, and I say we, but in reality, like I was always the worst one, you know? Like I was always the one that would like fall down a bunch. And um, I broke my ankle walking down the street. I fell off a sidewalk and broke my ankle. And like that was my the summer after my first year of college. And I think all of those moments combined, I probably would think it every time I woke up hungover and be like, man, I really shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. Like, this is worse than my other friends. Yeah. And the peer pressure of it and the like, well, how would I make other friends? What would I do? And I think now... Now, I I do still drink, and I still have the thoughts, maybe I shouldn't drink at all. Um, But I think now, the thought that I had in college of like, what else would I do? How would I have fun? How would I make friends? How will I date? All of those things, like that doesn't feel as big because I have other things in my life.
0: And I think that this is a really important point to feel into is that one of our deepest unmet needs in our culture is genuine connection and community. And the only, or one of the only cultural um, options that we're given through movies and through our quote unquote elders, even though the elders truly are missing from our culture, is where do young people go to connect? They go to bars Mm -hmm. and they go to clubs. And if you feel into, so our environment uh, invites us into certain ways of being. And if you feel into what a club or what a bar is inviting you into based off of the environment, it's inviting you into disassociation from your inner wisdom essentially because that's one of the functions of alcohol and that that can be used in a way in an experience container to actually lead to profound experiences. But that's not what we're talking about here. Mm. The music is such where it almost makes it impossible to have a genuine connection through speech. Like one of the things that kind of blows my mind whenever I go to any club or any bar is like you could literally be six inches from me and I can't hear you. Um, And then the quality of the music is to invite you to essentially like, you know, be in the most primal parts of your ego. And that can range from terrible music to like barely okay music. (laughs) And, um, it's, it's also constructed in a way where there's like, you have to spend a tremendous amount of money to like be in the space, you know, like, if you're like my boy, Graham, you gotta buy everybody drinks, you know? Um, and, what's interesting is the moment that you start to move into a point in your life where you see that there's another way to genuinely connect with people, the pull to that just on its own begins to relax. And this gets into a deeper point that we don't have to go down, but I just want to riff on it for a moment for the audience, but it's that we fundamentally misunderstand how addiction operates and the way that we try to heal or fight addiction amplifies it. No one, wants to be addicted. No one's inner call. Um, if, if they were whole would seek out addiction and the way that we try to combat addiction is we try to make the substance that give the feeling of safety illegal. Uh, and so then we we turn addicts into criminals. Um, and then we prosecute the addicts. And so we make them feel more unsafe. If you ever go to jail for being an addict you now have it's now harder to get a job it's now harder to get back into society in a way that makes you feel safe and it actually amplifies the wound that leads to the addiction whereas if you begin to cultivate an an environment for the addict that is nurturing they will on their own slowly in most cases become less of an addict There's a really amazing, um, study that was done. I think it was in Portugal where they legalized everything, um, all drugs, and they specifically made public clinics where it was free to go to get heroin. Um, and so the black market for heroin in that country almost fell away. Uh, the heroin that was being given out was, um, pure and clean and It was done under medical supervision. And what they found after a couple of years is, uh, I think after like four or five years, they got to a point where there was not a single reported heroin death in the country. And the rate in which people came into the clinic slowly declined each year. And the argument that's made from that is as soon as they were able to, um, get the addiction in a way that didn't exacerbate the wounding. They slowly got to the point where they were able to look at their life and make different choices because they naturally wanted to. And so I think that it's your story highlights that for me, which is as soon as you found this weird thing called fit for service, and it's not about fit for service, it's, it's about an opportunity to have a model of how to genuinely connect with other people. Um, some of the destructive coping patterns slowly start to fall away.
1: I mean, it's also, it's the community, but it's, I think if you had asked me a few years ago, what can you do when you hang out with a group of friends that isn't drinking? I would be really hard pressed to give you an answer. Mm. Like go for a walk. What would you even talk about? Yeah. You know? And I think in the community that I've found, it's hard for me to think about what our friend group would be doing if we were drinking. Right. It would dampen all of our conversations, it makes the connections completely disingenuous. And I just don't think that a few years ago, a year ago, even
0: Mm.
1: I would be able to hang out with a group of people and feel comfortable at all,
0: Right.
1: which is wild because that's the complete opposite nature of like how we're meant to be.
0: Right. And one of the things that like, I can... I have had the experience, I'm sure everyone listening who has drank has had the experience where if you if you don't overdo it...
1: Which I don't know how to do. <laughs> right. That's my problem. Right.
0: That um, I can't have one. You can at least have opportunities with your friends where for the first time, like, you know, when you're coming back from the party or whatever and you go get shitty food and you come back and you're eating, There's can be an opportunity for the two of you to have like a, a fucking conversation about something that actually matters. But if you go a little bit too far, one of my least, one of the experiences that I have in the human experience that I like the least is when I'm looking at someone and I can tell that they're deep enough into some type of drug where they're not there and they're not going to remember this. And they're trying to tell me something important and they think it's important. And I can feel that it's not. And it's just, it's just, it's this fucking sad, sad feeling that I have in my body, which is like, this person wants to be seen. They're not even fucking here right now.
1: And that's the feeling that I've had. That's the, the feeling of the morning after that I've had for years. Yeah. Where I just feel sad for myself, where I'm like, oh, you're trying, but you're failing.
0: Yeah. And so the next question that I wanted to ask is what was that first moment when you were starting to get introduced to our weirdness where you were like, I'm not going to tell anyone that this is fucking dope, but this is fucking dope. What was that first moment?
1: I mean, there are probably some smaller moments, but probably the like biggest one would be the Temescal that we did in Mm. Tulum to the first Temescal that we did with the crew.
0: Mm -hmm. And for people who don't know, a Temescal is a central slash South American style sweat lodge where it's like a stone igloo. (laughs) And um, people who have been trained in this lineage for hundreds and thousands of years, they have a beautiful... Ceremony of um bringing super hot rocks into the middle of this cocoon, they cover the door so it becomes pitch black and it traps in the heat and then um they'll sing Hedison songs they'll say prayers uh it's incredibly challenging it's incredibly hot uh' it's you're, more
1: challenging if you're hungover.
0: yes, and you were um and you're knee to knee shoulder to shoulder with other humans who are fucking sweating and um when that door opens and you step out you feel reborn and one of the things that our culture fundamentally is missing is the healing that comes from initiation r- rituals and rites and every major culture that has gotten to any meaningful level of complexity had their own versions of initiation rituals and our culture is completely absent of them. Like most of us, our initiation is, uh, you go to college and what a shitty
1: initiation
0: graduate. Um, and what's beautiful to me is that your first aha moment came from, an ancient knowing that all people in every culture have had that it needs to be given to adolescents. that like you need to go through something incredibly hard with people that you care about, that you feel safe about that pushes you beyond where you think you can go and um, gives you the opportunity to essentially practice dying. You know, like that was, uh, a easier way than some of the ones that you ended up doing after. But so you emerged from that and what was the experience for you where you first were like, there's something here.
1: I think it was the first experience that I'd had in community Mm. with all the yoga training I've done and, you know, I'm the self-help book warrior. I love a good self-help book, but all of the things that I've ever done have been very much on my own. And I think, you know, that's that's kind of just been me from childhood is like, I'll just go do it on my own. I don't really care what everyone else is doing and I'll be different and that's fine. But I think it was really the first time that I... had that community bond of we're fucking doing something here. I'm sorry for my trash mouth. (laughs) I can't stop.
0: My comma is fuck. (laughs) My mom
1: and dad are going to be so disappointed. Um, But yeah, I think it was the first time that I really was able to be with other people doing something that felt purposeful like all the community that I've ever had. And it's not about the people. It's about the environment and the container. But it's always been really non-intentional, really shallow in terms of, you know, what we're really doing when we get together as humans. And I think that was the first time that I thought to myself, okay, we've got something here. Like there's something beyond this that's really, really important for me to look at. It was my first experience um, where I felt into my ancestors. Mm -hmm. Like I had never, literally never thought about my ancestors who were dead, who are dead, ever, ever. Like, yes, I've, you know, my my mom's grandparents who have died, I've thought about them, but I've never really, before that Temes call, that was a crazy experience, feeling into that I am a part of, like, something huge. Yeah. And I was like, wow, I'm really not alone, Yeah, which was cool.
0: There's a couple of things there. One is um, before you are... People who are growing up in our generation and around our generation, um, most of our social interactions are with people who have the same coping patterns as us. And it's actually not about uh, whether or not they genuinely feed our soul or help us live the life that we want to live. It's do you have the same addictions that I have? Will you help me ignore my inner whisper together? You know, and can we do the same things that allow us to disassociate. And one of the things that we see a lot, um, you know, like in the fit for service group and just like amongst my friends is when people have their, when people start saying yes to their waking up moment, it can actually be tremendously lonely for a while because, uh, they don't purpose fully, but they naturally just begin to grow away from the people that shared the same coping behaviors you know, and some people will try to hold on to those friends longer than others. And then the other thing that, um, came up when you started to mention that is one of the powerful things about initiation rituals is that they have the opportunity to, um, literally change the, the, uh, brainwave pattern that you're operating at. And so there's alpha, beta, delta, and gamma and there might even be theta, but like these are measurable brain states that when you move into them, uh, fundamentally change the way that you experience reality. And most people are stuck in beta and that's kind of the like default mode network ego, thinking about the past and the future in a way that's really not productive. A lot of people can get into alpha and that's where you're like really focused. Everything's really honed in, but there are other brain states that um, if you have a way to move into them, you have experiences that are what are called transpersonal. It's beyond the self, it's beyond the personal. And what the research in psychedelics um, is showing in the last like five or six years is if people have that experience even once, it can radically change how they relate to dying, if they're a cancer patient, Um, It can radically reduce their symptoms of depression if they're depressed. It can radically like two to three times more effective than anything that we have help people quit smoking. Um, And those are currently the major studies that have been done. But there's something about that feeling that you shared about like for the first time I felt connected to something huge. It feels like one of the fundamental aspects of addiction is that we feel like we're alone. You know, we grew up in a culture that is very poor at facilitating experiences that, uh, that helps us connect to the truth, which is so easy to say. And everyone who's listening has heard this sentence before, but once you feel it, it, it'll change your life. And it's that you in a way that is inarticulatable are connected to all of living life. Like we are of nature the fact that we have clothes on is almost one of the ways that we like disassociate and that we live inside of these boxes, but we are of the whole and there's a part of our brain. There's a part of our nervous system that knows how to feel that if you can move into that and like breath work can get you there. Uh, Trance dancing or ecstatic dancing can get you there. Um, Psychedelics can get you there. Really hard fucking sweat lodges can get you there. And so you have that experience and something in you wakes up, Can you tell us the story of what started to unfold after that?
1: After that, I still was fighting it so much. (laughs) Like I just did not want to give in for whatever reason. I really just did not want to give in to all of the things that I was curious about, but I felt like were too out of the ordinary to participate in.
0: And could I challenge you and invite you uh, for a moment, instead of saying for whatever reason, because I know that you know, uh, can you take a moment to feel into why were you resisting?
1: Yeah, I definitely know the reason. Um, Perception of like how others would perceive me.
0: Fear of judgment.
1: Fear of judgment, totally. Um, you know, being afraid to not be able to explain, like why and how and what, um, I think I still I, I still am, trying to hone in on my elevator pitch of like what I do for a living. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I think it's, it's very scary to start to do something out of the ordinary and explain it to people who are afraid.
0: Right. One of the most interesting things to feel into is everyone – Who is living the life that culture has asked you to live. Everyone, they can feel in their bones that there is something fundamentally wrong. They can feel it. And as soon as they see someone doing something outside of the cultural story that they've chosen to be imprisoned in, one of the first things is cult. Like whatever word you can say to dismiss that there's a different way to be, Because on some level you have to justify the fact that you're putting yourself through something that you can feel is making you sick.
1: Yeah, I think the interesting thing for me and kind of the path that I've gone down with the work that I do is that you can read all the books in the world, you can listen to all the podcasts, you can do all of those things, but until you have an experience, it's impossible to let go of your fear of that thing. And I think why I've why I've been kind of called to the path that I have been called is because of my experience with that exact thing of like I think I'm interested but also this is so weird, no thank you. I can't do it. Right. And until I've had even like small tastes of those experiences, I haven't been able to let go of that judgment. Right. And so, you know, for what I do, I want to offer people who are even just the smallest bit curious, a really easy introductory experience to something that's outside of their norm so that there's that really small thing in their brain that's like, okay, okay, like, that wasn't so bad. And like, there was something there for me. And, you know, unless you can, unless you can do something in real life and have your body experience it and have like the feeling, the physical feeling in your bones of like, oh, that didn't kill me. That really wasn't as weird or as bad as I thought it was going to be. That's when you can start to be, you know, curiosity builds. And like, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't curious about mushrooms for a long time. I was like, <laughs> no, no, thank you. I was very afraid. I was like, that seems like way too much. And, you know, as I just started to hear more about it, that curiosity built enough that my physical body knew that I had to experience it yeah. in order to let that fear go. And I think that's the same for all of the things that we're doing, like ecstatic dance. It doesn't seem like it would be that bad. Like you just have to dance, but it's terrifying. (laughs) Like the first time you do it, all you can think is like, what do I do with my arms? And like, what does my face look like? And literally no one else cares. But until you have that experience in your body to know that it's actually safe when you do it, you just can't, you'll just forever be afraid.
0: Yep. The two things that arise when I hear you say that is one, I just love the beauty of this pattern that I see over and over and over and over again. And it's that people's medicine is specific to the type of wound they had. And one of your wounds was the pain for years of ignoring the curiosity and that you feel called to specifically help those that have the first inklings of the whisper. But they're afraid, and I think that, like, that's just the beauty of like how our psyche seems to function. Is our medicine literally comes from the suffering that we went through, and the other thing is, um, like, the reason why I think you felt safe to eventually say yes to mushrooms and to eventually say yes to ecstatic dance is that we weren't forcing you. We weren't trying to make you. We were like, "Do you want to?" And you're like, "No." And we're like, "All right." And then we just had a, an amazing time, and you would witness the amazing time and the aftermath. And I think that that's a good thing for anyone listening and for you and your work is that, I've gone through this in really painful ways with my family, that if you try to drag someone to the altar, you are actively increasing their resistance and the amount of time that they're going to suffer. But if you just go to the altar when you're called and you either let them bear witness or you share your shit either publicly or with your family, just sharing what your experience was without trying to make them the ones who are ready, who have the most curiosity, they'll eventually come to you. And this is one of the ways that social media can be used that can actually be healing, which is if you cultivate the courage just to share your stumblings, there's people watching that you don't even realize are watching. And maybe one of them will reach out in the DMS in a couple of weeks or months be like, You know, I see you talking about ecstatic dance, like, how? So um, you had the awakening, the first awakening after the Temescal. Um, Can you kind of tell us the story that brought you to the point where you decided to start Conscious Curious?
1: Yeah. After the Temescal, it was so interesting because I you know, on our team for fit for service. And I've said this a bunch of times for, I mean, it's been two years since then. I have felt like a freshman in a sea of seniors. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so like, I'm weird or like the baby. And like, I've never done ayahuasca and I've never, I mean, I hadn't done mushrooms. And I really just felt like this like closed off little freshmen with all these cooler kids. And for me, the way that I am in my person, I've always been the kind of person to just do it anyway. And in the past, it's been really, really easy because the thing hasn't been that hard, you know, like moving all around and traveling random places. And like, there wasn't a fear there. So I just had this idea of myself. I had this story that I was so brave and I would just get up and go and do anything. And the reality is just that the thing wasn't that hard. But because I have that story about myself that I am really brave and can do anything, when the thing was hard, I was like, well, I guess we're doing it anyway. And we'll just... Trudge and like, you know, see what happens. And so I've spent the next two years working for Fit for Service and really being on the sidelines and like watching from behind the curtain, but really taking in a lot. And what were
0: some of the things that you took in that you like learned or saw?
1: I saw all of these people being incredibly vulnerable, which to me is like, God, no.
0: (laughs) The most terrifying Why
1: would I do that?
0: Why would I be vulnerable?
1: Like, then I would be weak, so don't do it. So
0: I, I, so I think that that is a sentence just to like breathe into for a lot of people. I think a lot of people equate vulnerability with weakness and weakness with bad and like one of the really heavy things to feel into is that I believe it's one in four people feel like they don't have a single friend. And um, loneliness is not correlated with not having people around you. Mm. Loneliness is correlated with how many people you feel truly see you and the psychology around when you feel seen is literally in proportion to your vulnerability. And so loneliness is actually a self-induced situation because of our relationship with vulnerability. And I know that you know this now, but literally the strongest thing that you can do is be vulnerable. You know, like a man who can look at a woman and say, my feelings are hurt because I don't feel loved by you is a hundred times braver than the man who will ignore it and, you know, go fight. And I think that you being willing to articulate that thought that most people have, which is I can't be vulnerable because that's weak. Thank you for saying that.
1: And it's funny, like the, the idea that vulnerability is weak when it comes to relationships That's always, and this is a reframe that's happened very recently. That's always been the thing that I felt was the most like good about myself was that I was like the cool girl who didn't have a lot of feelings.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Oops. Yeah. So have you seen the movie or read the book Gone Girl?
1: Yes, but I can't. I've seen the movie. I think
0: it's fucking incredible. But there's a segment in the middle of it where spoiler alert: when you find out that she's not actually dead, there's this monologue that's taken directly from the book that's in the movie, and it's her writing about like um, essentially how free she felt because in the past she was the cool girl. If the and what she was talking about is how most women, in her view whatever type of man that they fall in love with first, that it doesn't work out. They then begin to mold themselves into the type of girl that they think that dude would want. So if he was into football, I'm gonna learn football and like talk about plays with them. And if he's into going out and clubbing, I'm gonna learn how to just be the candy on the arm and just shut my mouth. And um, she was basically given this monologue to like, fuck that, I'm not gonna be the cool girl anymore. One of the things that comes up um, is whatever led you to as a child being like i have to do it on my own is also the thing that's like i can't be vulnerable in relationships because my intuition because for me um it's not my parents fault but my relationship to them is i felt i couldn't rely on either of them for different reasons and so for a long time i didn't feel safe to let other people help me so i had to be independent Uh, and that led me to not letting people in in relationships and that led to a lot of heartache and uh, it's only in the last couple of years where i've cultivated the experiment to what would happen if i actually let people help me what would happen if i actually let the romantic i'm about to
1: start that experiment for myself
0: it's going to be beautiful (laughs) so um one of the things that you find when you were watching fit for service for those two years is what happens when people are vulnerable? Mm. What else?
1: There's a lot of activities outside of drinking. Like I think that people literally do not know what to do with themselves. And the thing that we're told is that you should go out to bars and you should drink, and that's how you connect. And there are so many other ways, and you can have real conversations with people. And I mean, we, we actually used to serve alcohol at Fit for Service summits. We used to do this opening happy hour, and everyone would get smashed. Like, that's what we used to do. And then one day we were sitting around, and we thought to ourselves, well, that's stupid. Like, why do we create this beautiful container that has all of this opportunity for healing, all of this opportunity for connection, and then we dampen it? We literally turn the lights out on it and say, here's alcohol. Connect now.
0: And I think what's incredible for us to connect to here is even the cool seniors, when we started Fit for Service, we didn't understand um, how to do meaningful connection without having the lubricant of alcohol at the beginning, and it took us about a year. No, it took us two summits in, in the first year. It was at the because it was when we went to Tulum, mm-hmm. where we realized, oh, to the degree that the people who are coming in are afraid, is the degree that they tend to get smashed, mm-hmm. and. It, and then they're hungover and then they it's hard for them to actually connect deeply to the experiences that we're creating. And it took us a year basically to get to the point where we got smart enough to even remove it. And so like this is a deeply entrenched cultural idea. What are some of the things that you saw in Fit for Service those first two years of other activities that you can actually do with people that you like?
1: I mean... The possibilities are literally infinite of things you can do without drinking in order to connect. Um, I mean, I think the thing the thing that was powerful for me is that it's not about finding things to do; it's about finding connections, which you cannot form when you're drinking alcohol. And so, if there's no alcohol involved those connections naturally form
0: interesting,
1: and then you can talk to each other. Like you can just talk to one another yeah. and there's a lot there. Yeah. And yes, you can, there's activities you can, you know, you can do yoga and you can do breath work and you can cover yourself in Mayan clay and you can ecstatic dance. But like all of that is not really the point. The point is that it's the connection that is just unable to be formed unless you're sober. Right. And that was a big lesson for me because when we decided to not have alcohol, I was like, fuck, how am I going to connect with people?
0: Yeah, because if if we're being vulnerable, um, you would get through the summits just drunk.
1: Oh, I was hammered.
0: And, and it was both incredible and also- I mean,
1: I crushed it still. We yeah. did all of the things. Get them. And you know, I went to bed at four and woke up at six and we did the whole summit. And, but yeah, I was drunk the whole time.
0: So you start to see um, what people in Fit for Service were doing, what were some of the other things? Cause that slowly led you to, mm. cause it feels like at least from my end, um, there was an incubation period with Fit for Service for, for about two years. And then you said yes to your first mushroom experience. Mm -hmm. And then that led to you saying yes to a 5-MEO experience. (laughs) And then that led you to, I really think something really important happened for you when you got sick and you were in Costa Rica and you had to kind of be away from everything. So can you kind of tell us the story that weaves those three things together? Because I think that that will bring us to the present moment.
1: I think that once, I mean, really, once I started saying yes to things, it became easier to just say yes to more things. And that's the key. Yeah, it really just starting. Um, But I mean, that's the case with anything. But I think that the saying yes to things came with the knowledge and the feeling that I was supported. And it wasn't like, here, we're just going to give you three and a half grams of mushrooms and set you free on your own. Like the container that we have and, you know, the intentionality of all of the things, all the experiences that I've had with this, this friend group have been very safe. And... I mean, 5-MeO-DMT was safe, didn't feel safe at the time. Physically, it was safe. Um, but you know, the fact I came out alive was really, 5-MeO-DMT was, I mean, I thought mushrooms were like the breaking, not the breaking point, the turning point. And then I did 5-MeO and I have literally woken up every every day, I kid you not, every day. And I touch my face and I'm like, ah, flesh, so good. <laughs> So good, yeah. like just so, I saw, I saw a level of the game in 5MEO that I do not wanna see currently. And I came back to this level and the level of gratitude that I have to just be literally doing whatever I'm doing, the most simple things, like waking up, I'm like, oh my God, This is the best thing that's ever happened to me. And I think that reframe of like, you get this level once. I mean, maybe, I don't know, maybe you get it again. I really don't know anything, (laughs) but like I, this experience I get one time, what am I going to do with it?
0: Yeah.
1: Like if I just dream into the biggest possible version of what this level looks like, I have all the freedom in the world to make that reality. And I think after after that turning point, it was just open season for my creativity to just be like, let's fucking go. I felt this sense of like, I don't want to say, I mean, in a way, kind of like self-destructive freedom, but like, I, I really do feel like it's all a game and I can do literally anything I want. And then we went to Costa Rica and I got COVID and I got stuck for 12 days or something like that. And there was something weird about how, I mean, I was stuck with two friends of mine, two other girls, women, and we sat around and just vibed. We let our imaginations run wild with the things that we can create and the the projects that we can start and, you know, the events that I can do. And, you know, we talked about, we had 12 days to be together and we weren't allowed out. (laughs) And so it was just nonstop. Like we were a factory of ideas. And I have never felt so much, I have ideas a lot and I don't act on a lot of them. but there was something about being in that container with the women that I was with, who are literally the best hype women in the world. (laughs) Shout out Kimberly and Gigi. Um, But you know, we really just had all of this excitement about the things that we could create, that we all got back and it was like, Really, something switched for me. Of like, you just have to do any of it, and I just started doing it. I started an events company um, when I left on it over a year ago, and have never done events outside of fit for service, partially because I didn't have to, but partially because you know I didn't know what to do. And in Costa Rica, I had a bazillion thoughts, and. You know, it's actually really easy to just do it. I think I overthink and overplan a lot of like, okay, how is this all going to work out? In terms of business, that's the case. Not really in life. I don't think maybe enough about (laughs) decisions. (laughs) But, you know, I got home and I just started, I just started. Working and started creating stuff. And I've got, you know, eight events coming up this summer that I just feel like came out of the ether for me. And I was like, this is amazing. Thank you, COVID. All I needed was 12 days alone with Hype Women and we got it figured out. But yeah, it was just a wild experience to not have the outside world And to really give myself, well, it was given to me, but that time to disconnect from everything else and to not really have responsibilities on a daily basis. I couldn't even taste food, so I really didn't even have the responsibility to eat. I was so, it was so boring. I only had the memories of taste. And so there was literally nothing else to do but to create, 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 and it was awesome.
0: One of the things that stands out for me when I listen to that is you don't have to do psychedelics to get to this place, but that if you haven't experienced something that has really allowed you to feel in your bones, that what we are doing as a culture is a game. And you know, the stakes are high. Like if you break the rules, you can go to jail, but it's a game and you are going to die, whether or not you get lives beyond this one, no one knows. And anyone who is sure they're not being honest with you. Um, It seems to be that you, at least what we can know is you only get this body once at this time once. And there's this uh, quote from a poem, but it's what are you going to do with this one precious life? And before people really confront, their own felt sense of death. The opinion of people that they don't even admire can keep them from living the type of life that that force inside of them is whispering. Aren't you curious to see what would happen if you said yes to this? Go try that. That once you feel for the first time, what it feels like to actually believe that you're about to die. And this can happen in a car accident. This can happen if you have a, panic attack or whatever, but the true felt sense of like, Oh my God, it's over. And then you get to come back. The creativity that can come through can change your life. And the Greeks had most of the really prominent powerful cultures like uh, the Egyptians and the Greeks and the Persians and a couple of different places in the East. They all had some type of mystery school where most of them had some type of plant that you ingested that would, and they all had their own name for it, but it essentially allowed you to experience the afterlife or that's the way that they thought about it. It, it allowed you to die and then to come back. And that that was almost required for anyone who was going to do anything meaningful in the world, because you had to have that type of perspective and it's incredible to see someone that i've been growing up alongside like taste that and then to see what she's doing in the wake of that and you know i feel like it kind of brings us to the present moment what do you see as the life that you what do you want to do with this one precious life
1: it's cool to think about that because i think that the for a long time I've been thinking about what am I gonna do? Like, who am I gonna be? What is the the thing that's gonna make me feel a certain way, look a certain way, whatever it is? And I think just super recently, I think really that the time in Costa Rica, um, I'm starting to recognize that it's not what am I trying to be, but I'm really starting to understand that, like, how am I going to be of service? And that's what creates who I'm going to be. And with the project that I just started, Conscious Curious, the idea of that was born out of when I look at people who are stumbling around in the dark, I see that there's so much on the other side of that. And it makes me really sad to look at, you know, people who've lived an entire life in the dark. And like, you know, I'm 29 and I'm, grateful that I've kind of found this path or forged this path for myself. But for people who go through decades and decades and decades of their lives, and then they are on the precipice of death. And like, what have they experienced? What have they learned? Do they feel like their life had meaning? Do they, you know, there's all of these things and I'm, you know, I'm projecting, I'm not on the brink of death. I don't think, but when I, you know, when I look at my, grandparents, and even my parents, but, you know, what, what did they really do in their lives? How did they feel? Who did they, who did they help? Who did they love? Who loved them? My idea for what I want Conscious Curious to be is to help people along the way so that they don't have to forge their own path so that it doesn't take as long for people to start to feel something really real. Yeah. You know, like how can you bring people out of the dark? People, you know, you can't drag people. You really can't. As you said, like you just have to, you have to be the embodiment of what you're, you know, trying to trying to help them see, you can't drag people in your direction, you just have to be and then they'll see you and think, oh, that looks, she looks happy. She looks fulfilled, you know? But, you know, I think for people who do have that little tinge of curiosity to, you know, provide experiences that help them to kind of open their eyes a little bit wider, And a little bit wider. I think that there's, you know, what we do in Fit for Service is the deep end. Like you cannot take any random person off the street and say, "We'd like you to eye gaze um, immediately."
0: You could disagree, but I hear
1: you. You could, but for the (laughs) most part, people's resistance is way too high.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, you know, the people that join Fit for Service, they have that curiosity. It's it's strong. They're not at the beginning. Maybe a few, but those are the really brave people who are thinking to themselves, you know, the only way to do it is in the deep end and I sink or swim. But, you know, a lot of people, that's too scary for them. The language is really confusing. The experiences are too intense. They don't have the tools to have that experience and then be able to go home and like self soothe and figure out what the heck that means for Mm -hmm. them. And so- You know, my goal is to provide, you know, introductory experiences to people who have a curiosity and there's nowhere for them to go. And so they stay in that in that state of like, I'm not gonna cross the bridge. Yeah. I'm not gonna take the step because I don't no one's there to lead me. I feel very confused. And so I'm just gonna be fearful and judgmental and alone.
0: What I hear in that is uh you're at the point of being called to be of service and, uh, the type of person that you're trying to help is the Madeline that first saw fit for service. Totally. And why anyone who, um, has that first experience of awe or fulfillment, like when you have that first moment of, Oh my God, this is possible. I, I had no idea that i could feel like this with other people or i could feel this about myself when you look to all the people that are living the way that you used to who are operating and you can tell that they're operating under the belief that what you experienced is not even a possible human experience there's this deep deep call how can i help my brothers and sisters like there's people in my life that I can look at who truly don't believe that there's a sun. they've lived in a cave their entire life. And they truly believe that there's not an experience where this thing can be on your cheek and it's warm and you can hear birds. They've only known the cave. Like I'm willing to dedicate my fucking life to try to get as many people uh, who are ready to come into the light, to come into the light. And I think it's fucking incredible that you're, at that point in your unfolding.
1: Thanks. <laughs> it's been a long time coming. But the you know, the thing about it that I find really beautiful is that, you know, I did all those hours of yoga teacher training and I never taught. And I thought for a long time, what a waste. But that and moments like that, Everything else that I've done leading up to this, all of it was, you know, it's all part of the part of the thing. And if I had never done that, I wouldn't have taken the next step. And so, you know, where I am now, it's fun to dream into what it's going to be in five years of like, you know, maybe... Now I think, you know, conscious curious and my events company, like that's the thing right now. But that's probably not going to be the thing in 5 years, but it's going to be a huge stepping stone. Yeah. And dreaming into the fact that I'm 29 and I have so many years left. Fucking dope. What are all the things I'm going to create from now till then? Like it's cool. It's a game. It's a dangerous game. You should be very careful, <laughs> don't go to jail.
0: Ram Das has a quote that he has from um, one of his like spiritual teachers told him, uh, be sure to let people know that death is perfectly safe. And like everyone in the audience laughs, but that's a side note. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm gonna switch gears a little bit. What was your favorite story or movie or book as a child?
1: I thought we weren't going to do this question, but here we are. Um, My favorite movie as a child, one of my favorites, was Pippi Longstocking. But the real, the real people one. Do you know Pippi Longstocking?
0: No. So this is perfect. Okay. (laughs) So I'm going to ask you to tell us that story, like we are your daughter, and we're ten years old. We're curious. We want a story and can you tell us the Pippi Longstocking story from your heart, not from memory, but truly, once you're ready to begin, speak it as if you're talking to your daughter and it's a bedtime story. So don't explain it to us. Tell us the story.
1: There once was a girl. Her name was... Pippi Longstocking, Delicatessa Windowpane Longstocking, I think is her full name. And she was a little girl with red pigtails that curled up on the sides, and her father was a pirate, and they sailed on the seas with her giant horse and her talking monkey. And one day a storm came and Pippi Longstocking was in the crow's nest. And when the storm came, it knocked her and her father and her horse and her monkey out of the boat and it separated her from her father. The last words that she heard from her father were, find Villa Villa Kula. And so Pippi washed ashore, and she found this big old house called Villa Villa Kula. And her and her horse and her talking monkey took residence in the old, dusty, broken down house. And... There was a family that lived next door who had two little kids, a boy and a girl. And this house has been empty for so long. And the little boy and the girl used to play in the tree in the yard. And one day they come over and they see that Pippi and her horse and her talking monkey are inside. And they think to themselves, what is this? And they go in. And Pippi is there quote unquote, cleaning the house and the whole house is covered in bubbles. And they think to themselves, well, this is the coolest girl we've ever met. And so they start to hang out with Pippi Longstocking. And Pippi is here living alone. And this man comes to the house and he says, oh, this house has been empty for so long. I'm going to, I'm going to, buy it and tear it down and fill it with concrete and build something on top of it. And Pippi is there and she's she's trouble. And she makes so much trouble for them. She throws them into the trees and she flies around ruining things for them and making it very difficult for them to take over this house. And the... Woman from the orphanage, who was asked to come by the man who's trying to buy the house, comes to Pippi Longstocking and says, I'm gonna take you to the orphanage. And Pippi says, No way. And so her and the two little kids next door build a flying machine. And they get in their homemade flying machine, and Pippi spins around really, really fast to make a propeller with her arms, and they fly up and away and They end up in the woods, and their parents, the little kids' parents, come looking for them. And eventually, they find them as Pippi and the two little kids are about to go down a waterfall in a barrel. And they pick them up on this plane, and they bring them back home, and Pippi gets sent to the orphanage. And when she gets sent to the orphanage... one of the caretakers accidentally drops a cigarette and lights the house on fire, the orphanage on fire. And Pippi is already escaping, as Pippi does, because she's trouble. And she's climbing down the wall outside of the orphanage, and the orphanage starts to set on fire. And the fire trucks come, and they're trying to get all the kids out, and there's two little kids stuck up in the top of the orphanage. And Pippi climbs across a telephone wire to go get them when no one else can get them. The firefighters can't get there, but Pippi can fly and a variety of other things. So Pippi climbs into the top floor window and she throws the little kids down into the trampoline below and saves the little kid's life. And so now everyone is on Pippi's side and they're like, yay, Pippi! Pippi! You saved everyone's life. And so they allow Pippi to move back into Villa Villa alone with her horse and her talking monkey because they think that she's fine. And in that moment, her father, who was separated at sea, comes waltzing up to the door singing a pirate song. And Pippi, who never thought her father was dead, she always knew that he was going to come back at some point stands at the front door and is like, dad, you're home. And in that, it's Christmas time and dad comes in and they have this nice Christmas together. And then Pippi's father says, Pippi, we have to go. I told the people that I met that I was gonna bring back a princess for them whose name is Pippi Longstocking. And Pippi says, I think I'd really like to stay here. I don't know how I can leave the friends that I've made. And he says, okay, well, I'm going to go back because I told them I was coming. But you can stay here and keep your horse and keep your talking monkey and we'll see each other soon. And Pippi's father sails away on his pirate ship. And Pippi lives in Villa Villa with her horse and her talking monkey, happily ever after. Mm.
0: You see how you're Pippi?
1: Oh, yeah. My dad calls me Pippi sometimes. Well, not in a long time, but he used to.
0: And the really beautiful thing that I feel in that story is... um, One, the fearless ingenuity to solve a problem, Uh, the courage to say no to people in authority, Um, the willingness to be vulnerable, to have true friendship. And that that is what actually gives her the strength to say no to the thing that she thought she wanted. And in stories and myths and fables and such, the father tends to represent culture. And that there was an accident that brought her away from the cultural ways. Um, And when she found how to be of service, that gave her the strength not to go back. Sounds about right. Great
1: great movie if y'all have never seen it.
0: I don't know how they're gonna do that scene with the helicopter as arms, but. (laughs) Last question. I'd like to invite you to dream into it's the last day of your life. You're as old as you want to be. Um, You've accomplished what you've sought to do. You've lived the way that you've sought to live. How would you want to spend that last day and who would you want to spend it with other than your horse and your talking monkey?
1: better have those, that would be ideal. Um, Yeah, I think that, you know, there's no better people to spend your last day with than your family. And ideally I'll be very old and there will be lots of them. Um, You know, my children and my children's children and potentially their children, I think something that's very special to me is, you know, in my family, stories, which I know will be exciting for you. You can feel it. <laughs> um, stories are huge. You know, I was at a funeral this last weekend um, of a family member of mine, and all of the All of the Irish family, my dad and his brother and his other brother and even just all the Irish guys that they grew up with or that they work with, we were all at the house afterwards and they just tell stories. And I have heard 29 years worth of stories and there are still new ones. And when they get together, it is the most fun. It's the absolute best time to reminisce. And they're not even stories that I'm involved in. They're just stories from my dad's childhood. And I'm not sure which ones are real and which ones are fake. Sometimes the real ones are funnier than the fake ones. And I, I genuinely think that there would be literally no better way than to be with as much family and friends as possible, telling stories, laughing making jokes, like that is where I feel the most, yeah, the most connected.
0: And If you could leave a message on a piece of paper for your children and their children, what would you write? And you're writing this right before you go to sleep.
1: This is all a very important game. Mm.
0: Madeline congratulations you didn't cry but I saw you stifle about yeah I think 11 or 12
1: I've been stifling tears for an hour and a half I did cry I cried once okay
0: um (laughs) thank you so much it's been such an honor and a gift to watch you transform and thank you for being of service
1: thank you thanks for having me